Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 375 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17. The Last Manned Landing December 10th at 3.36 p.m. Houston time, almost exactly four years after Apollo 8 made man's first orbits around the moon, Apollo 17 swept behind the moon and out of contact with Earth. It was the eighth and final crew to see the moon from orbit. Eleven minutes into that first dark side pass, they fired the service module rocket for a a six-and-a-half-minute braking maneuver that decreased their speed by more than 2,000 miles per hour and allowed lunar gravity to capture them firmly in an elliptical orbit that stretched 60 miles by 195 miles. The burn went smoothly but only the crew knew that at the time because they were behind the moon where communication with Houston was impossible. On Earth, the suspense built for another 22 minutes until the crew came around the front side and Gene Cernan radioed, Thumbs up, Houston. You can breathe easier. America has arrived on station for the challenge ahead. Here's how Ron Evans explained it. You know, as I mentioned, you leave the Earth at 25,000 miles an hour, and then you can kind of think of it, uh, it's really orbital mechanics, but you can kind of think of the Earth's gravity as slowing you down, slowing you down, slowing you down, until you reach a point between the Earth and the Moon where you're only whipping along at 3,000 miles an hour. And then you come into that lunar gravity, lunar uh, uh, field of influence, and then you start accelerating and accelerating and going faster and faster and faster, until, by the time you get to the moon or go along the side of the moon, you're going too fast to go into an orbit around the moon. So what you've got to do is turn your spacecraft around backwards, light the engine, slow it down just the right amount of speed so that you can go into an orbit. It's a very, very critical maneuver, as, as many of them are, as all of them are, as a matter of fact. But anyhow, on this particular case, you go by the side of the moon, and you light the engine off, and, and if the engine burns too long, that means you slow down too much, you go back along the side of the moon, and it goes, boop, hits the back side of the moon. Not too good for the astronauts, see? Or, if you're going along the side of the moon, the engine fires, but it doesn't fire long enough, then it slows you down a little bit, but not enough, and you go, sing, 
off, skipping off into space. A little bit of curve, but you're going that way and the Earth's back over here. Not too good again. So you burn the engine exactly right and you end up going to, into an orbit around the moon. And the orbit that we ended up in was one that went 60 miles high at the high point. And then I was going to dump these other guys off. See, so we took them down to 50,000 feet. Now, as you're going around the moon and you start out at 60 miles above the moon and you look out the window and you're going to go zzz, it looks like you're going to hit right into the moon. But you don't. You just come around and you cross the low point of that orbit at 50,000 feet, a little bit higher than some of the airplanes fly around here, and, and, and then you go zoing, whipping by on the thing, and looking at it, and then you get on the other side, and then you start climbing back up to 60 miles again, see? So while we're in that orbit, Gene Cernan and Jack Smith uh, jumped in the lunar module, and they separated. They went down and picked up rocks, or whatever they do on the moon, you know. Uh, <laughs> and... and, and uh, uh, I lit the engine on my spacecraft and went back up into a circular orbit that was 60 miles high all the way around. Back on Earth, the Washington Post published a front-page photograph of Tracy and Barbara Cernan seated on the floor watching television, a small American flag between them as they listened to the squawk box. They made small talk with friends and tensely waited for the crew to reappear during that first pass around the far side of the moon, when they had to do the burn to go into orbit. When Gene reported that all was well, Barbara flashed a thumbs-up sign and cried, Great! Tracy looked up and asked, Was the fire okay? Yes, it was, her mother said. Tracy nodded happily and chirped, I'm going to look up there at the moon and see if I can see Daddy tonight. Four hours later, they fired the service module engine again and dropped into another lower orbit of about 68 miles. This was the area Cernan knew so well from Apollo 10. Cernan radioed Houston, quote, We is getting back down among them where us plain folks belong, end quote. For some reason, when Gene got around the moon, his syntax fractured. Then Jack and Gene went back into the lunar module to run the final checks and pronounced Challenger ready to go. Ron still had not found his scissors, but Jack had certainly found his tongue. Now that they were in lunar orbit, he went on a verbal blitzkrieg, speaking almost continuously. Earthly weather patterns were long forgotten. He was pointed the other way now, at the moon, and was talking rapidly in short stories of science, describing Eratosthenes, dark albedo areas within the ejecta of Copernicus, central peaks like Reinhold and Landsberg, the nonlinear characteristics of ray patterns, the Marius Hills, Oceanus Porcellarum, and the irregular swirls in Mare Marginius. Not mere sentences, but whole long paragraphs in a single breath, driving the poor transcribers back in Houston crazy. And all this just from lunar orbit, before they had even landed.
Back in the command module, Ron jettisoned the world's largest lens cover, a 170-pound door that protected science instruments and cameras in the equipment bay on the side of the service module. That opened the two cameras and three multi-million dollar instrument packages which Ron would operate as he flew in high orbit while Jack and Jean were on the moon. The data and pictures he would gather would provide new measurements, draw a thermal map of areas over which he passed, and bounce radio waves into the surface to measure soil composition more than a half a mile deep in search for water, permafrost, or ice. Water on the moon was extremely important as it would vastly simplify maintaining a space habitat there. Of course, in the back of Gene and Ron's mind was always the safety of their family in the wake of the terrorist threat. Capcom updated them with some comforting words, laden with import. That everything was still okay around the home front. They had news for Jack, too, and told Dr. Rock that his mother was pleased as all get out at what her son was doing. That sounds like mother, he replied, brushing it aside. Personal feelings were not going to interfere with his science, and the next thing he said was, I just got a real good view of Copernicus, a big crater, 80 kilometers in a diameter, etc., Finally, Capcom alerted everyone that it was time for a rest period that would last almost four lunar orbits, and they reminded the crew that tomorrow would be a busy day. Landing Day, December 11, 1972 The astronauts awoke to Arlo Guthrie singing City of New Orleans, but Jack and Jean at a different destination. They climbed aboard Challenger at 8.50 a.m. Houston time and donned their suits, zipped and snapped, connected the helmets and put on the gloves. Many of the items they needed for the lunar landing were crammed inside the spacecraft and the outer edges of Challenger were lined with the folded rover and other things too large to fit in the cabin. It reminded Jean of an overstuffed closet on the inside and the Beverly Hillbillies truck on the outside. When all was ready, they undocked at 11.21 a.m. Ron radioed, Okay, Houston, this is America. We're floating free out here. The Challenger looks real pretty. Shortly thereafter, Gene reported, Checkout is complete. We're looking at America the Beautiful. Then the two tiny spacecraft, so far from Earth, spun around the backside of the moon in tandem at 12.41 p.m., and Ron took the command module back into a higher orbit while Gene and Jack headed the other direction, lowering their own position another eight miles. In Texas, Barbara and Tracy went to morning mass at Ellington. Ron's wife, Jan, and their two kids, Jamie and John, 
also attended a church service. Then, as the time neared for landing, they came over to the Cernan home. Neither family had been glued to the television set and kept generally abreast of the situation in space through periodic NASA updates. It was a major change from the early days when wives and children hung on every word from space. But of course, that was before the missions mounted into long days and longer nights. Now it was time for the big show, and Barbara Cernan found her living room filled with friends sharing the event by television. With 25 people munching cornbread and beans, as Challenger struck out for its landing on the moon. Barbara and Tracy were on the floor with their fingers crossed, monitoring the astronauts' chatter on the squawk boxes and following a minute-by-minute flight plan that was unfolded on the carpet. Jean's mother sat beside the television set, and the screen reflected the colored lights of their decorated Christmas tree in a nearby corner. Dave Scott, and Al Bean, moonwalking veterans, were on hand to answer questions. Barbara wore a dark turtleneck sweater over her spreading maxi skirt that bore the mission emblem and made sure to smile for the photographer, although some quiet strain, compounded by a lack of sleep, was building in her. She had changed considerably since the flight of Gemini 9, when NASA had thrown her out onto the front yard to a press corps that was a feeding frenzy. Just as the space agency had not helped the wives adjust to moving to Houston, neither did it ever say the wives didn't have to meet the press if they didn't want to. It was just something else that was expected to be done without complaint. But by Apollo 17, Barbara was far past the novice stage and in much more control of what was going on in and about her house. Still, there were so many people around. The landing site was on the northeastern edge of the moon. So when Challenger emerged from the far side, Jean had only about 15 minutes for mission control to check the lunar module systems and give him a go for the burn. This is how the landing was supposed to work. Nine minutes prior to the start of the descent, the computer runs the program 63. This controls the start of the burn and continues through the braking phase of the descent for another nine minutes. Powered Descent Initiation, or PDI, occurs about 500 kilometers east of the landing site and 12 minutes before landing. With three minutes until touchdown, the computer moves to program 64 that pitches the limb forward, giving the commander a view of the landing site. During this approach phase, it indicates to the commander where it intends to land. About 600 meters out, the computer selects program 66 to become part of the control loop. As the computer rides the throttle, it controls attitude, flying helicopter-like to the surface. All right, let's go. One more time for the last time. 
As PDI nears, the DISCI or Display and Keyboard Assembly display goes blank. It has begun to measure the acceleration from the incoming burn. This is termed average G. Okay, approaching 30 seconds. Blank. DISCI. 50 blank. Average G. Got two lights. Okay, engine arm is descent. I think the tape meter drove. I'm not sure. Confirm the ellage. Standing by for ellage. Ten seconds. Fuel ellage. The two lights Smith mentioned were altitude and velocity lights. They indicated the landing radar had not yet locked on, which was expected. An ullage burn is used to force the propellants to the bottom of their tanks and the helium pressurizing gas to the top. We've got ullage. Proceed on the 99. It took. Now the computer will flash 99, so Cernan can press proceed, thereby permitting the burn to go ahead. Power descent begins after a short countdown. The descent engine will run at 10% thrust for 26 seconds to give the computer time to sense the limb's center of mass. It will then go to its high thrust setting. Two, one, zero. Ignition. Ignition, Houston. Attitude looks good. Engine override is on, master arm is off. We got a decent quantity light on at ignition, just e prior to ignition. GT, she tanks good. RCS is good at 15 seconds. Roger. RCS is golden. Should be stable throttle up. Stand by, there's throttle up. time, Houston. And the computer likes it. Roger. Still got the quantity light on. The computer has commanded the engine to its highest thrust settings. As the rocket roared beneath their feet, Gene recalled that NASA officials had said this flight would be close to the limit of the LIM's performance capabilities. But that was no problem for Cernan. All he had to do was make a pinpoint landing in a place no one had ever been before. Okay, attitude looks good, Jack. Okay, at 30 seconds. Should have uh, about 108. At 30-second intervals, if workload allowed, the crew compared their progress against a table of expected values. The LIM has two guidance systems. PINGS, it's the primary, and AGS is the backup, intended for an abort only. The crew compare the reading on both systems to see if their state vectors, which are velocity and position, agree. Oh, boy. Ags and things are close. Okay, coming up on one minute. As they started falling out of orbit, Gene was barely aware when they penetrated his Apollo 10 floor of 47,000 feet because his eyes were riveted to the instruments as he sought to absorb every nuance of the machine. In order for the push of the rocket to slow them down, its fiery end was pointed in the direction they were moving, parallel to the moon's surface, and inside the cabin they were traveling feet first and face down. When Gene stole a look, 
he immediately recognized the large undulating area growing beneath Challenger. Thanks to the simulators back on Earth, with their computer-enhanced photos of the approach to the landing site, he knew this place better than the palm of his hand, and there were no surprises as they zoomed toward the jagged highlands that separate the Sea of Tranquility from the Sea of Serenity. Meanwhile, Mission Control had measured the limb's velocity using the S-band radio system and worked out the downrange error in targeting. They gave the crew an offset value of 3,400 feet, which would compensate for the error and trick the limb into landing in the right place. The offset value is only entered into noun 69 once Mission Control has checked that it has been typed into the disky correctly. One minute, you ought to have uh, 98. Okay, H dot is high right now. Mark it, one minute. Altitude Challenger, high. Houston, I have a 169. What's good, Houston? Plus 0340, zero, zero, plus 3,400 feet. Over. You're looking at it. Okay, 3,400, I confirm. Challenger, your go for enter. H dot represents their vertical speed or their rate of descent. Roger, go for under 130, we're go coming through 57K. Okay, the altitude's high and the H dot is high. That's right. Okay, at one, uh, two minutes, you ought to have 89 on the ball. Uh, we're still 30 feet per second high in H dot. But we're about 8,000 feet high. Challenger, Houston, okay, we'd like you to cycle the PQGS switch off and then back on. Okay, it's off. And it's back on. Quantity light is out. Roger, that should be good now. Turning a system off and then on is a common way to clear anomalous conditions in electronic systems. This was used here to fix the fuel low indication they had at the beginning of PDI. And Houston, we... Okay, we have uh, engine thrust and commanded thrust, full scale high. Roger. Man, that looks good. Okay, babe, let's uh, check them at 230. RCS looks good. 230, I'm about 89 degrees. Cabin looks great. 51.5. 89 is great. We're catching up on our altitude. We should start dropping H dot here a little bit. Ags and things are together. Ags has us uh, a little bit out of plane, and we're north. Has us north of track. Challenger, Houston, you're we're going, going we're out of 49K. Roger, understand we're go. One of the position numbers in the AGS indicated how far left or right, that is south or north of their ideal track, they are. The ball number that has been mentioned is the Flight Director Attitude Indicator, or FDAI. It displays their attitude by rotating a ball, and it should be showing a pitch angle of 82 degrees. Okay, at three minutes. 82 is your ball number. We're still uh, looking for uh, the right altitude, so our H dot is high. Okay.
As the burn continued and the limb became lighter, the G-force on the crew increased, so they felt heavier. Pressure weight's building up, looking good. Attitudes are good. Okay, at 3.30, you ought to have 79. Okay, it's right on. Uh, we're still a little high, about 2,500 feet. H-dot is still high. Okay, the tape meter moves in spurts and jerks, both on altitude and altitude rate. Yeah. Smith checked the voltage on the ED bats. These were the batteries that powered the explosive devices that would separate the stage in an abort. Before PDI, the limb was yawed left 70 degrees to improve the angle of the high-gain antenna to Earth. Now, they reduced the yaw to 20 degrees left or 340 degrees, so the landing radar could see the surface. Okay, Gordo, yaw's coming to 340. Roger. And the radar lights are out. Beautiful. With the radar now working, they compare the radar's value for height with the computer's. This difference is known as delta H. If it is not too big, the radar's data can be accepted by the computer. Okay, sounds great. Both systems are go right H. on the line. Okay, you're looking at delta H. And you're go for a verb 57. Verb 57 is an instruction for the computer to accept altitude and velocity data from the landing radar. The landing radar's data will now be gradually incorporated into the guidance equations. Eventually, the radar and computer will converge on the same values for altitude and velocity. Okay, verb 57 is in. Hey, Houston, is the axe out of plane correct? Stand by. Okay, coming up on five minutes, Jack. Let's take a check at it. About uh, 74 degrees. That's good. 70 feet per second. We're coming down. 36. You're still a... Uh, Challenger, you're going feet. five minutes. Okay, the eggs out of plane looks okay to us. Okay, go at five. We're out of uh, 36.5 now. We got the earth right out the front window. Challenger Houston, battery three on at your convenience. Battery three is on. 53 miles to landing. 30, Gordo, we're go, we're out of 34K. 73, 34, we're right on altitude, the H dot ought to start dropping off. Except that we want to keep it high. You're allowed two quick looks out the window, one now and one when we pitch over. I can't see a thing except the earth. That's what I'm telling you to look at. <laughs> oh, there's the old earth. Okay, he's been coming up on six minutes. Six minutes, you ought to have 72 on your ball. Challenger, you're going to go. 40 miles to landing. It's great. H dot's great. Ags and things are very close. A couple feet per second difference. Okay. 31,000 feet out. We went over the hump. Uh, Del H just jumped. Roger. 
And it looks like it's back down. Delta H is comparing the pings with the landing radar. As the radar detects the mountains east of the site, it affects Delta H, a good sign that it is working well. Roger, sounds good. 630, Gino. It looks good, babe. 72. Altitude is right on. H dot is very close. Okay, 30K, you on a zero. Battle down time, 7 plus 26. 7 plus 26. Okay, we got everything. We're yard zero. Okay, at seven minutes. 67 is your angle. 26. 27, that's great. 106. H dot slightly high, but okay. Okay, Gordo, we're going seven. We're now at 25,000 feet. Okay, we're quite a bit out of the command module plane, but I guess we're on target. Okay, watch the throttle now. Here it comes. Cernan yawed the limb a further 20 degrees right so that it was facing directly up. Mission Control predicted that the computer would throttle the engine down from its high thrust setting at 7 minutes 26 seconds into the burn. Battle down 2-7. Computer likes it. Beautiful. Roger. Okay, 730. The main engine is now operating in an adjustable range so the computer can ride its thrust to fly towards the ideal trajectory. Okay, 145 to pitch over, Jack. Okay, 63 is your angle. About 56 now. Okay, that's getting closer. H dot and H are great. Pitchover is also the time that the computer changes from running program 63 to program 64 and begins the approach phase. Standing by for the camera. 19K Houston, we're go coming up on 8. Okay, the old camera's on, Gordy, believe it or not. At this point, Smith starts a 16mm movie camera mounted in his window, shooting at 12 frames per second. How about that? You're at 8, monitor fuel 2. 10 miles to go. Fuel 2. Of the two independent systems for measuring propellant quantity, the more conservative fuel 2 was selected to be monitored. 27, that's good. Come on, baby. 18,000 feet. 830, Gino. Okay, I got the South Massif. Okay, uh, update the ag, Houston. Yes. That's affirmative, update the ags. Okay, Gordo, I got Manson, I've got uh, Lara, and I've got the scarf. Five miles to landing. We're level with the top of the massif now. Roger. Smith updates the ags by passing it the state vector numbers from the pings. The state vector consists of six numbers that define velocity and position in three dimensions. Gene called out the passing landmarks that verified they were on track to the narrow entrance to the valley of Taurus Latreau. Okay, one five one one five one zero entered. Okay, uh, Jack Pitch over here. Go uh, nine. Two four. Two okay. four on pitch over. Okay, Gordon, we're out of 11,000 at 9. Okay, stand by for pitch over. Oh, are we coming in? Oh, baby. 
Okay. Through 9,000. Stand by for pitch over, Jack. 8,000. I'll need the pro. I'll give it to you. Pitch there over. it is. Proceeded. And there it is, Houston. There's Camelot. Wide wow. on target. I see it. Challenger pitched forward to a more upright attitude as Program 64 began the approach phase of the descent. The computer now indicated to Cernan where on the surface it was taking them. This was the LPD, or Landing Point Designator. Earth now dangled like a colorful Christmas ornament smack dab in the middle of Challenger's window. A memory flashed through Gene's mind, and he recalled on Earth, where most mountain ranges are part of a long sloping climb to altitude, there is seldom an opportunity to stand at exact sea level and look up at a mountain towering 8,500 feet above you. Even in the Rockies, you're already a mile high before you reach the higher peaks. But on the moon, life was different. The age-old flutter of exploration excitement gripped Gene as he realized they were entering the unknown, the terra incognita of lore, the sort of place on which ancient map makers wrote, Beyond here be dragons. Down they flew toward the crop duster altitudes, scooted over the dome-like sculptured hills, some of which were more than a mile high, and roared into the eastern entrance of a crater-pocked lunar valley deeper than the Grand Canyon, surrounded by mountains whose crests were above them. We got them all! 42 degrees, 37 degrees, through 5,500, 38 degrees. Challenger, you're go for landing. 40, 42 degrees, through 4,000, 47 now. 47 degrees through 3,500. 49 degrees. 3,000 feet. 53 degrees. Okay, I've got Barre, I've got Poppy, I've got the triangle. That's 2,500 feet, 52 degrees. H dot is good at 2,000. H dot is good. Fuel is good. 1,500 feet. 54 degrees, Gene. Approaching 1,000. Approaching 1,000 feet. 57 degrees. Okay, you're through 1,000. I'm taking radar altitude and things altitude degree. You're through 800 feet. H dot's a little high. Smith was reading the angle from the computer to tell Cernan where to sight past lines marked on his window. This was the computer's aim point. Cernan then pre-designated to the left, causing the limb to respond by temporarily rolling to the left, while Smith continued to call the numbers. The north massif rose sharply to their right, and the south massif was on their left, anchored by the debris of some time-distant landslide, a huge shelf of broken and fused rock while Family Mountain was in a blockade position some three miles away at the far end of the valley. In front of the family crouched the Lincoln Scarp like a line of stone infantry, a rupture in the lunar surface eight times higher than any cliff on Earth, where geologists hoped they might find rocks that had come up 
from 50 miles deep in the moon. Wonders awaited their discovery. A quick check showed they had plenty of fuel as they danced above the craters, and Gene blessed those many hours of training. What he saw out there was familiar, not frightening. A small triangle of craters Gene knew as Frosty, Rudolph, and Punk came near, the familiar names and memories provided comfort and drew him closer. Gene had a deadlock visual. He knew exactly where he was, and the limb had become part of him, responding to his wishes as well as his touch on the controls as they lowered closer to the surface. Yeah, I don't need the numbers anymore. Okay, you're 31 feet per second going down through 500. 25 feet per second through 400. That's a little high, Gino. Okay. 300 feet. 15 feet per second. A little high. Eight dots a little high. Smith then changed his calls to tell Cernan their height and vertical speed because it was hard enough for Gene to keep his focus on what was approaching and he was too busy to listen to more data and the numbers didn't tell the whole story. What he saw outside forced decisions on when to slow down, dodge left or right, or maintain a steady rate. Okay, I've got P-66. Okay. Okay, nine feet per second down at 200. Going down at five. Going down at five. Going down at 10, cut the H dot. It feels good. 110 feet, stand by for some dust. The computer was now in program 66, which allowed certain control of the limb's attitude and therefore the direction of the rocket thrust. Additionally, Gene could adjust how fast they descended by flicking the rate of the descent switch up or down, each flick adjusted by one foot per second. But finding a place to land wasn't as easy as anticipated. A boulder the size of a house that wasn't supposed to be there loomed right in front of them. Gene slid over it, only to encounter a deep hole that had remained hidden for time eternal. Hitting either one would ruin their entire day. Jack was one determined lunar module pilot, keeping his focus and watching the instruments so closely that he never even saw the landing. The rocket engine continued its booming growl, and the constant vibration felt like big wheels were churning beneath Gene's feet. He adjusted and took aim for the final target, rifling past the edge of Sherlock and toward the hummocky lip of a big crater. Trident was out the left window, Lewis and Clark out the right. Gene could not go beyond Camelot because it dominated a low plain they had dubbed Tortilla Flats, where massive chunks of rock jutted out like the points of sharp spears. It was now or never. Gene tickled the little switch with a single fingertip, and Challenger responded, moving toward the landing zone as if drawn by a magnet. This was the payoff, the ultimate dream of any pilot, for Gene wasn't flying a normal airplane, but a spaceship something much more complex, and this flight would be its only one. Only five other human beings had ever done this. There were no practice takeoffs and landings with a limb, 
and simulators and helicopters could convey only some of the characteristics. Every normal frame of reference had disappeared, and beyond the thin window, the strange sunlight was richer, the shadows longer and deep, the lack of color absolutely forbidding. Going down to the surface of a foreign planet had dropped Gene into the twilight zone, and he was truly in a different dimension, moving the limb across unearthly terrain with no room for mistake of any sort and feeling the weight of a watching world. Little forward, Gene. Finger forward a little. 90 feet. Little forward velocity. 80 feet. Going down at 3. Getting a little dust. You're at four, 60 feet. Going down about 2. Very little dust. Very little dust. 40 feet, going down at three. Stand by for touchdown. Stand by. The dark mantle of the valley just below contrasted with the massifs shining and bright. The earth, fighting for Gene's attention, dominated his window as if painted there when they entered the dead man zone about 200 feet above the moon. Past that point, if the descent engine quit burning for any reason whatsoever, Physics and time would take over, and they would fall to the surface and crash before Gene or the computer could possibly recover. The emergency abort button would be useless. Gene scanned for an empty space in a parking lot of boulders as big as cars and was concerned the powerful lunar module engine might kick up a cloud of black dust that would blot his view. Instead, there was very little. In fact, the dust raised by the engine exhaust was much less than that seen at other moon landing sites. Gene was able to eyeball the landing site. So close to the valley floor, those surrounding massifs seemed really big. The sheer north massif to the right stood as tall as eight and a half Eiffel Towers, and to the left, the wretched slab of the south massif would equal the height of about seven Empire State Buildings stacked one atop the other. A determined Jack stayed with his readouts. Almost there, Gene steadied the lander for the final hop as charcoal gray dust rose up and rolled around the windows, slightly obscuring the view. 1.5 meter long probes hung from three of the footpads. When one of them touched the surface, a blue lamp would illuminate in the cabin. This was the signal to stop the engine. 25 feet, down at 2. Feels good. 20 feet. Going down at 2. 10 feet. 10 feet. Contact. When Gene heard contact, he immediately stopped the engine in case its nozzle was blocked by the ground. Stop push. Engine stop, engine arm, proceed, command override off, boat control ahead, hold, pings auto. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. They dropped the last few feet with a stomach-flipping thud, jolted once and came to rest slightly tilted in a shallow depression. They were only 200 feet from the precise place picked as a target months ago on Earth. 
It was 1.54 p.m. Houston time on December 11, 1972, and four days, 14 hours, 22 minutes, and 11 seconds had elapsed since they had blasted off from Florida. Gene paused for a moment and slowly exhaled after making one of the smoothest landings of his career. More than two and a half hours of unrelenting dynamic action and steely tension had drained his senses since they had undocked from America, and now everything came to an abrupt stop. Instant silence reigned. Not a word from Jack, who was stunned as Gene. No pounding rocket. No vibration. No noise. Not the song of a bird, the bark of a dog, not a whisper of wind or any familiar sound. Gene was totally enveloped by such a thorough and complete stillness that he would have difficulty comprehending it for the rest of his life. The only sound inside his helmet was his labored breath, and even that slight disturbance seemed so terribly intrusive that for a brief moment he stopped breathing too. Then there was nothing at all. He broke the spell. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Edkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 375 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 17, The Last Manned Landing. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First, a very important announcement. My new email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Please don't use the old one because it won't work. Our next episode will be posted in a couple of weeks, hopefully by November 11th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 198 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Today we celebrate our Galaxy Emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for six consecutive years and receive a Galaxy Emoji next to their name on the donors page. Okay, I had just a couple afterthoughts. I presented on this episode a detailed, highly interrupted version of the last manned lunar landing. Now, I know many of you like to hear an uninterrupted version of this landing, so next time I will play that at the beginning of the episode, starting at PDI and ending at the landing. It'll take about 12 minutes. So, I would have liked to have played it on this episode, but I just ran out of time. I ran a little bit long on this episode, so I'm kind of hurrying through. A couple of episodes back... I was talking about the thickness of the skin of the limb. Remember, it was only two thousandths of an inch thick. Well, 
I had a very nice email from a listener about that, and I was given permission to share it with you. This is from Justin Dalk. Justin writes, Dear SRT team, and thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate you including Mrs. SRH in that. She does a lot of behind-the-scenes work that she is not even recognized for, and I appreciate you calling us a team because she certainly does a lot of work. Here it goes, continuing with the letter. Uh, Justin didn't say all that stuff. That was me. <laughs> continuing with the letter. I just finished listening to the newest episode on Apollo 17's TLI. It brought up a fond memory of my late grandfather and a source of pride for my family. As you mentioned in the episode, the outer skin of the limb was only two thousandths of an inch thick with the intent to save weight. The thickness makes it awfully difficult to weld the skin to the frame without puncturing the thin skin. At the time of the Apollo program development, my grandfather was working R&D for Miller Electric. Think big blue welders that you see on the back of construction vehicles. It was my grandfather's job to develop the technology and the protocol to weld and seal the astronauts into the limb. Despite his passing two years ago, I can still hear him chuckle whenever he talked about how ridiculous two thousandths of an inch is. All it took to doom some astronauts. Thanks for all that you do, Justin. Well, thank you for sharing that, Justin. We appreciate that story. That, that's a very nice story there. Now, for those interested in the farm progress, and there surprisingly are quite a few of you, as I get email from many of you telling me that you enjoy hearing about it. So thank you for your interest. We've been uh, living in this camper now for seven months straight. That's as long as we've lived in the camper continuously. Although, in total, we've probably lived in this camper two years with all the traveling we've done. But anyway, we are kind of dreading the prospect of winter in the camper. But, I'm afraid, we may have to experience that too. But there was finally some good progress made on the house. The tuba tins and the OSB were delivered. The carpenter built the floor over the basement and then continued with the walls and the roof. So we have something that closely resembles a house now. We do not have shingles up yet. Hopefully that's coming soon because we're going to get a lot of rain this week. We did have a little bit of bad news. The concrete in the basement has developed a long crack that is growing. Obviously, something will have to be done about that. Now, it doesn't seem to me that we should have a big crack like that when it's only been poured for a week. It was poured like a, a week, and then the crack began. So, I guess now it's been poured maybe three weeks. But that crack keeps getting bigger. So, uh, something's going to have to be done about that. I will try 
to put up a picture of the house as it looks now on Patreon. So everyone can view it at the URL. It's very simple to remember this URL. Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. That's it. That's all there is to it. And then you get there and you scroll down and look at the post. Now this is free to everyone who wants to look at. You do not have to be a member of Patreon to look at it. So feel free to go over to Patreon and look at it. If you want to join Patreon there, that's okay with me too. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had a uh, six contributions. And I would like to thank Johan B. from Denmark, who sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. James B. from Australia donated at the Gemini level. Jorg B. from Germany donated at the Gemini level. Jim E. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Gordon G. from Canada donated at the Vostok level. Hans W. from Austria donated at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors, unfortunately, are still at 246. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 396, and our goal is 500 by the end of 2021. So, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at Space Rocket History and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, providing that you can afford to do so. Now, Here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. The winner of the SRH drawing will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or the SRH archive magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected... Michael Sankbuehl. Michael Sankbuehl, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. My apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 396 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 17 in Real Time, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, Apollo 17 Surface Journal, Apollo 17 Timeline, The Internet Archive, Flickr, Ron Evans, Apollo 17 Landing from PDI to Touchdown, edited by David Woods and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 376 posted by November 11th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.